Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. I'm John Norman and this week looking at India's humbling at the hands of Australia in Adelaide and asking what lessons should England heed. On today's show, I'm joined by one of the most fearsome bowlers of his generation, Steve Harmison. And you'll also hear from an Aussie who talks like he played 100 tests, Jarrah Kimber. Neil Manthorpe also uh, swings by to talk about uh, Jack Callis, Quinton de Kock and uh, plenty of other uh, South Africa-based uh, cricket tales. Uh, it's a stumps-flying, 94-mile-an-hour, toe-crunching, coley-going-home type of show. You're listening to The Cricket Collective. Easy catch. Pat Cummins able to remove the night watchman early. Oh. Edged. They would have thought they could have kept India to 150, that they'd be well in the game, but to knock them over for 36, that's a freakish performance. So alongside me today, uh, Steve Harmison and also Jared Kimber. Now, according to uh, to your wife on Twitter, the only reason you're up, Jared, is because your young daughter uh, had woken early uh, and therefore you got up and... Uh, as Lucky coincidence, the cricket was just about to start. Uh, but we also know that, of course, even if uh, your daughter hadn't woken up, you would have been there uh, watching from 4am. Personally, I also got up early because of my young child. 10 to 6, I thought, oh, I, could, I can listen to a bit of cricket. And it was all over <laughs> by that point. Ridiculous. Um, first things first, Jared, uh, you watched it. Give us a flavour. 
of what of what it was like watching the, the, the incredible, very short innings unfold live. Yeah, I mean, it, it was crazy, especially when you are in the UK, you, you do get up. And I'd set my alarm for every day, and for some reason that day it hadn't gone off. So, you know, uh, when my ba- baby did wake me up, I ran downstairs and put it on. And it felt like for the first half an hour I wasn't actually watching live cricket. Felt like there was some weird dream coming on. I mean, Pat Cummins was bowling so ridiculously well. Um, and I suppose that bit felt normal. But when Hazelwood came on, the amount of times I've watched Joss Hazelwood just beat the bat over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years is ridiculous. And he had one of those, I suppose the best way to, to put it is one of those Stuart Broad spells where every time you beat the bat, you don't actually beat the bat, you just get an edge and it's out. And that's what it felt like. And at the other end, there was just that sort of, that force of Pat Cummins. And this is not a bad Indian batting lineup. It was probably a little bit more shallow than they needed to go in with, but it's certainly not a bad lineup. And they just looked inept and unable to deal with it. And it all happened so fast that... I don't think there was any there was any way to do any proper analysis at the time. You were sit, sitting there going, they could, they could be bowled out for 20, 22 here, 23. I think they, they got to, what, 21 for six. And I was like, there's, there's every chance that they're going to break the, the New Zealand world record for the lowest ever total here. Uh, it was just coming that thick and that fast. And when Saha, especially when he chipped off his pads, you're just like, that's the shot in a, in a collapse where you just go, oh, they've given up. Mm, Those rem- poor guys, they've I, given up. I remember Brad had him playing a similar shot when uh, Australia were all out for 98 at, at Melbourne. Look, look looking, I had a quick glance at the lowest test uh, scorecard. Some of them come immediately to mind. Um, you know, England were bowled out in less time it took for Australia to bowl India out. They didn't even need three bowlers when they were dismissed for 58 in Auckland uh, in 2018. They went for 67 at Headingley last year. Uh, we were at the ground in Barbados and they were dismissed for 77. Australia been bowled out for 60 at Trent Bridge. Sri Lanka, uh, you were there. You were one of only, um, well, 100 people and, and, a, and a bloke yeah. in a line outfit when they went for 82 in Cardiff. Some question marks over that result, though. Uh, Ireland, they were bowled out for 36. Uh, no, 38, sorry, at Laws, Bangladesh for 43 in Antigua, uh, both New Zealand and Pakistan. This is world cricket here. New Zealand and Pakistan have both been bowled out for the four, in the 40s in South Africa. And uh, remember that, uh, was it Nagpur when South Africa were spun out for 79 uh, by India? Um, do we just, add, we just add this to the list, don't we? Yeah, I think it just it just got downhill fast, didn't it? it was, the one that it reminded me of was um, Australia and South Africa. I don't know if that was on your list. It um, isn't, but there, I you, mean, Brad hasn't so... played in that one as well, and uh, I agree. The way you yeah. just the way you describe it, it reminds me of watching that. I think that must have been about two thousand and eleven, um, and also reminds me, you know, England were twenty three for eight at Auckland. And of course, mm. it's New Zealand that hold the record for the lowest ever score, Test score. So they were <laughs> they were like. They were actually disappointed when England were bowled out for 58. But it was the same feeling, wasn't it? It was just like, how bad is this? Oh, my. Oh, this is going to be really. This could be the worst ever. And then, of course, they just about got over the line and, and, and avoided that. It, it's weird, isn't it? It sort of it sort of gets downhill on you. Uh, you watch these collapses from the outside, and you know, I mean, Harmy's obviously lived um, through some of them, probably sadly. But whether you're an amateur cricketer or a professional cricketer, I, I've, I've I've been in collapses on both sides, and they're kind of the same. They kind of happen in the same way, where there's there's they either happen very much in slow motion where everyone's watching it happen and no one can do anything with it, or the complete opposite where everything is happening at. Uh, you know, 100 miles an hour and everyone is panicking and it just there's no way. So it's, it's just like you're on this trajectory and there's no way of getting around it. And that's kind of what it felt like. 
there was at no stage where I thought, well, someone's going to come in here and, and knock a 30 or 40 odd um, together. And, and it's going to, it was always going to just end in this sort of collapse. And a lot of it just happened, had to do with, as I said, Hazelwood couldn't do anything except for take the outside edge. It was a phenomenally weird spell, which reminded me of that Stuart Broad spell. Well, Harvey, let's bring you in because, you know, you know, Jared says you're on the wrong end of some of those skittlings, but you're actually absolutely on the right end as well. Seven for 12. Uh, West Indies <laughs> bowled out for 47. OK, it's not in the last 10 years, but... When when you're in the middle of that, we always hear from the dressing room, don't we, about the yeah. panic that sets in, the batsmen rushing to get their kit on, the feeling of of, uh, of unease, and and it happens so quickly. But what's, what's it like being on the other side when you're the one, you're the tormentor? You just feel as though, it, like like Jared said, a fall. It does happen in, in in slow motion, but it you feel. I remember talking to Trez and um, during that time in in Jamaica after after the game. And he just said, I felt every ball was coming to me. I just thought every ball was coming to me. Every time the ball left your hand, I thought I was going to get a catch. Uh, Reedy said the same. And I remember Vaughny. Vaughny had these nine slips and that iconic photograph. And, you know, talking about Vaughny coming up to me and people asking, what was he saying from a field point of view? I was like, I just need a first and second slip. I don't need anybody else. This is coming out beautifully. As a bowler, you get a chance in your lifetime, maybe once or twice, where you just feel as though every time I let go of this, direction's perfect, shape on the ball, perfect, lengths, absolutely perfect. And no matter who was at the other end, you know, bear in mind during that time, you know, you got Brian Lara, Chris Gale, Ramnaresh Sarwan, Shivnaran Chandapal, they were they were probably four of the top twenty batsmen in the world at the time. And I'm not just saying it, you know, because I got seven for 12. Anybody could have been there. The lines and the lengths that were coming out. Sometimes as a bowler, you just feel as though, no matter who is 22 yards away, we're going to knock you over. And as a team, you get on a momentum and you get on a roll. And I think a lot of it happens with, with fast bowlers. You see spinners do it. You know, Warney's probably done it many, many times. And you, you, you have to, at times in India and in the subcontinent where a spinner does get on a roll and he's very, very difficult, especially if he's a mystery spinner, where he's very, very difficult to get to get started against. But there's nothing better when you see a fast bowler. And like you say, in the dressing room, people scurrying around for pads. When you're, when you're watching a fast bowler, but this time it was two fast bowlers, really hit their straps. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that something's going to happen and... You know, and and it all happens very, very quickly. And it's sometimes you just hope as a batting side, you, you want a break. You want a drinks break to get a little bit of a change of momentum. You want a, a lunch or a tea break to get a change of momentum. Because if you've got a whole session, you know, like we mentioned about Stuart Broad and many others, you know, the, the end is nigh and it all becomes inevitable. Uh, what lessons, if any, do you think English should be taking from that performance or display, Jared? Don't allow Pat Cummins to play. <laughs> any, any, any others? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. It's fine. It's, <laughs> I mean, look at the end of the. the end I of mean, the... it's a ridiculous bowling attack. Yeah. I mean, Mitchell Stark didn't take a wicket in in that um, session, and if you have a look at how he bowled, uh, you know, once the three of them get any sort of form together, and especially in the pink ball match, I think the pink ball match it, it makes Cummins and Stark particularly particularly more dangerous. Mm. Maybe not so much Hazelwood, but certainly Cummins and Stark more dangerous because Stark is then dangerous almost from the beginning of the innings to the end, which he isn't with the red ball. You know, he does have patches with the red ball where he's not as good. Uh, and and Cummins, I think he like enjoys bowling with that white ball as well. 
But when you have three guys of that pace and that skill set available to bowl to you, and, you know, we have no idea where Cameron Green is going to be in, in a few months, but if you can back them up with someone like Cameron Green as well, you suddenly, there, there is no respite. And there was a certain point as well where I looked at, I remember watching Shannon Gabriel bowl some great spells over the last couple of years, and he was like, if Shannon Gabriel bowls another over, he's going to die. He's just not fit enough, and he's too big a man to be able to bowl that. Watching Pat Cummins at the drink drinks break, I was like, if India had another 20 wickets to give, Pat Cummins would be able to keep bowling. That's the difference. And you watch England against someone like Vernon Philander and they come down the wicket and they, they try all these different funky things. What funky things do you try against Pat Cummins when he's bowling 93 miles an hour, leg cutters and off cutters at you? I'm just not sure what you are supposed to do. He is that good. I just ran the numbers the other day. Outside of... Um, uh, Glenn McGrath, that's not been a better bowler over the last 20 years against top order batsmen. He is virtually as good as Glenn McGrath, and he is a yard, a yard and a half, maybe two yards quicker. I want to talk about where this leaves Test cricket uh, and day-night Test cricket, if you wouldn't mind just sticking around for a little bit longer, Jared. Um, you are listening to Cricket Collective with myself, John Norman, and Steve Harmison. Has taken one, has got one here. Let's hope he's okay. Nice, nasty. Let's hope he's okay, Stuart Broad. He put his hand up straight away. A lot of concern out there. Let's hope he's okay. The ball we can still see in the grill there. I've seen Stuart Broad spit out a bit of blood there. Let's hope. Yeah. Wow. That's the second time this morning that Harmison has. Well, that's cut the Australian captain. Hayden took one straight on the helmet. Ponting, I think the ball has snuck through that gap between the grill and the peak of the helmet, and he's in trouble here. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with myself, John Norman, and Steve Harmison. Alongside us, uh, Jarrah Kimber, uh, fresh from an early start watching... Uh, Australia taking on India uh, in the UK time. 4am starts for the day-night test. I'm not sure if it gets more difficult or easier when the test matches revert to their more normal uh, time. Um, Okay, so uh, Harmi was, uh, myself, we were texting away as we do uh, in the lead-up to the show. And Harmi, you were saying that this result just highlights a problem you've seen and that is that the techniques of batsmen these days um, just isn't up to to spec. Um, And that's why you're seeing results or sessions of play, I should say, um, in the manner that we did at, uh, at Perth. Oh, not Perth, sorry, at um, Adelaide. Yeah, it, it's, it's more on the fact that I've got this opinion more down to the fact, not what happened in getting bowled out for, for 36, more the fact they're trying to outlaw the bouncer. I think that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard because, in my opinion, it's just people aren't playing it well enough. And why, why I've got that opinion is you know, the, this modern-day world of wanting to hit the ball as, as hard as you can, as far as you can in 2020 cricket. Why we love Test Match cricket so much is the contest between the bat and ball. And it's the, the, I think the, the durability of the, of, of the batsman being able to spend five, six hours at the crease to build an innings, Alistair Cook, Sir Alistair Cook and Sir Andrew Strauss style and you know, players like Sir Justin Langer who, who, who could bat for, for such a long time. And we're talking about, and it's been mentioned, talking about outlawing a ball which has been there from probably from Bradman's era, just before, just after, just around Bradman's era. And a large part of the time, they didn't even have helmets. Now they've got the protection on it. Yes, we had a horrific, horrific accident a few years ago, but I, I, I'm seeing batsmen now, get teams getting bowled out more from a, their technique problem 
a lot largely down to you know the, how good these bowlers are and the the in 2020 cricket the game's changed so much for the bat so why why are we whinging that the ball is taking over in test match cricket i personally think it's the more the batsman's technique is getting questioned rather than anything to do with the pitch or the ball or, or anything anything other than that. Mm, there was an article, wasn't there, Jared, in also coming out of Australia, Malcolm Knox suggesting that we should get rid of the bouncer. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting point as well. I'd love to get your thoughts on it because I'm reading the uh, Golden Boy, the story of Kim Hughes. Um, it's a brilliant book. I'm about halfway through, but there's an interesting passage of play and it describes uh, Kim Hughes, who was brilliant on the hook and he was saying that the hook shot is actually largely gone from the game if you look at the triple centuries that um saywag has scored uh, chris gale scored the hook and sixes from the hook were they, they, they didn't feature and batsmen these days are actually negating the the short ball by just getting out the way or of course there's different parts of the pitch to actually uh, deflect or direct the ball towards um so is is that is that part and parcel of it? Is it that batsmen actually don't know how to hook these days? They don't know how to take on... There's, in terms of the risk-reward, there there's, there's too much risk. Is that all linked to why it seems that players are struggling with a short ball? I, I think it all comes back to analysis, essentially. I think that teams have worked out that there is no way that you can consistently play the hook shot uh, the, uh, you know, and, and not go out essentially if you're willing to put fielders out on the boundary I think that and you've got more 90 mile an hour bowls than ever before uh, Jeff Tomo might have been quicker than any bowler uh, that we had before him but the other bowlers weren't bowling at 90 miles an hour consistently you had a handful of guys who could reach 90 miles an hour now teams have a handful you know mm. India never even had 90 mile an hour bowls and now they've got three four five you know and a bunch of backups you know so you have the ability you saw during the World Cup that teams would just bowl short over and over and over again and we didn't do that in one day cricket before so i think what happened was we had we had we've had a change in the way that we look at the short ball i mean wagner is ridiculous out of new zealand the amount of short balls that he bowls we've never had a bowler um do that outside the west indies and that was one team for one you know in one very uh, you know, one era. And realistically, even the West Indian bowlers bowled, uh, pitched up and tried to get your edge a lot and tried to get you bowled. Whereas Wagner doesn't even really worry about that so so much. So things have changed. The problem is that we now know a lot about concussion and we now understand that, you know, regular hits to the head is not just a bit of punch drunk and, you know, he forgets his keys, that it can actually lead to long-term problems. We're going to have to look into that. As far as batsmen altogether... There are a lot of very defensive-minded batsmen out there. You know, Dom Sidley, Darren Bravo, Craig mm. Brathwaite, Sean Marsh, Joe Denley when he was around, BJ Watling. Have you ever watched him? My God, yep. he hits the ball off the score about at, once every four hours. I was at Hamilton uh, last year. You know, year. Jennings, <laughs> Azza Ali, Shea, uh, Shea Pajara. So it's not that the defensive mindset has gone out. I think what has changed is we ha- we've had an incredible crop of bowlers. I think we can't... We cannot deny that we now have just an incredible, talented amount of bowlers mm. all around the world. You know, you have the ability. If you look at, I'll name three just at random: Rabada, uh, Archer, and Cummins. They can all bowl ninety miles an hour, and they are all incredibly accurate. Ninety mile an hour bowlers used to be more like Harmy. They could be accurate on occasions, but they weren't at the spot over and over again. The Thanks, difference Jared. between that and where we are now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Harmy. No, no, but, no. You're, you're spot on. But I think if Harmy was coming through, or you know, someone of Harmy's skill now, he'd be more accurate just because I think they're better at getting those guys to that level. And I, I think that the difference is, if you put all that together with a slightly more helpful pitch, and I do think the pitches are slightly more helpful, 
uh, than they were three years ago, certainly. And I think you put that together with analysis. The ability to say Travis Head averages 15 when you come around the wicket. How how much would Harmy have loved to have got that information? Uh, so before, instead of him bowling, you know, seven overs over the wicket to this bloke and going, I can't get this bloke out. Just literally having the analyst come up and go, mate, if you come around the wicket first ball, he's not going to be able to hit you. And I think that has changed. I think the pitches are more spicy. And I think the day-night tests, I think we know that you have to put more grass on the wicket. I heard Shane Warne saying that we should replace the red ball with a pink ball because it's better. Obviously, he hasn't done any research into this because the pink ball is not better. It gets really, really soft. And if you look at this test, between the overs 50 and 80, teams actually started to score really easily. It's the minute that ball gets soft, you can bat with it. The problem is that before then, it zips around everywhere and it creates all sorts of problems. So there are lots of problems for batsmen, I think, in in world cricket that that we didn't have beforehand. I'm not sure 100% if taking the bouncer away um, helps that, but we do have to look at how concussion plays a role in modern sport. Yeah, I'm going to come back in here, John, because I'm going to talk about about from a bowler's point of view. And I'm going to go... For example, I know Jared mentioned there about how accurate the bowlers are now. I think that comes down to the amount of one-day cricket and the 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 emphasis on accuracy comes with it. So if you put that with how quickly the, these guys bowl now and consistently the bowl now and the more analyst analytic side that Jared's spot on that they've got now at their fingertips. But I'm coming. I'll talk about technique and I'm talking about batsman's technique and where I would say I've got two teams written down in front of me which I'm thinking potentially from uh, an Ashes point of view where England and Australia might be come this time next year me and my bowlers head on here I look at England's batting unit and I can see Sibley Crawley Root Stokes Bairstow Pope if I'm looking at that I'm I'm questioning where their technique are and the best bowler of all time for me now is Jimmy Anderson and why because he is brilliant at exploiting weaknesses in technique. And sometimes that's helped from Anderson by having Broad at the other end or having a quick bowler at the other end because he can catch people on the crease. He messes with a foot movement. And during during my time, if I was standing there 22 yards away from a, a batsman, I'd be thinking, right, how am I going to get him out? And I'm working backwards and thinking, right, I've got eight, nine, ten balls. That's what Jimmy Anderson does very, very well. Me, personally, Steve Armisen, I'd use the bouncer a, a hell of a lot to get a batsman in a position where I wanted him to be. And I think that's what's gone out of the game because players now are looking more emphasis to hit the ball as opposed to not having the, the sort of analytical side of what, what Jared's talking about. But... As a as a bowler, I feel as though I I back then could use the bouncer to my better to my effect of getting somebody caught at slip, rather than getting somebody caught out on the hook. My bouncer was in a way of getting a batsman's feet movement in a position where the one that gets in and around off stump just outside is the one that's going to get him out, and I keep getting this every time I go back to Q and A's or after dinner stuff about when Ricky Ponting got hit in the head in two thousand and five. Matthew Hayden got hit in the head in 2005 at Lords. It was one of the first time in their careers, over 100 times, they've been hit on the head. And it comes back to batsmen's either nervousness or the apprehension of movement, their indecisiveness when they're not moving as freely as they want to move. That's when batsmen are in trouble. And that's why I think the ball in Test Match cricket now is better than the bat is because of a lot of indecisiveness in Test Match batting thought process because they've been taught in when they get a white ball, get a static position, go out there and hit through the line of the ball. Now, in a cricketing point of view from a Test Match, 
it's not like that. You've got five days to, 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 to try and make a game and make, make an innings. And I think the ball now, because you can put pressure, you can use two bounces, you can move the ball just outside off stump and leave it there like Anderson does a lot, Broad does a lot. You can get a batsman in a position to really exploit a weakness in their technique. And I think that's what's wrong with batting in the world at this moment in time because of very, very fine fast bowlers are now so accurate and question every part of a batsman's technique, hence why we are seeing lower and lower scores in test matches finishing in four days. Yeah, I, I think essentially what I think a big, there's a lot of different changes. I think the T20 thing is is interesting. Uh, I think the way that batsmen bat now is much more attacking than it's ever been. I think that there's no doubt that a bunch of CEOs around the world started making their pitches more lively. But, but I think when you, when you come down to it, the fact is we have so much information now and analysis doesn't help a batsman as much as it helps a bowler. We now know the exact, we now know that if you hang the ball outside off stump to Faf Plessy, that he will eventually nick off. We didn't know that before. That was a whisper and you might have heard it, but until you saw it in front of you, you didn't understand that. And we also know that if you're trying to play a ball at 90 miles an hour at your head with a shot that where your bat is not 100% straight, Chances are you're going to hit it straight up in the air occasionally. And if you try and defend it over and over again, you're going to get roughed up. And then, as Harmy said, you'll eventually start to nick off to the other balls. We now have that ability. So I think that I don't think that the batsmen have lost any patience. I, I just think that the game has changed and the batsmen haven't been able to evolve. But let's just remember this. The era right before this era was the second greatest batting era that Test Cricket had ever had. We've basically gone from the second greatest batting era that Test Cricket ever had to the second worst batting era that, that Test Cricket has ever had. It's been incredible how quickly it's happened. In 2016, people were making runs hand over fist and now no one could score. So I don't think we should, we should panic too much, but we have to make sure that you know batsmen remain safe and that bowlers don't end up averaging 15 with the ball. Because as much fun as that would be for people like me and Harmy... Uh, it might, it might start to bother the fans out there. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Myself, John Norman, and uh, Steve Harmison. Jared's not interested. He doesn't care what England do. But surely there are lessons to learn uh, from that display by Australia at Adelaide. And those lessons surely are not to pick four right-arm military mediums when England take on the Aussies in Brisbane, I imagine, first test about this time next year. Plenty to talk about on the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including 
England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies. In the culinary capital of the Caribbean, there truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. A little drag on, a little smile, another little nail in England's coffin. Oh yes, 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 yes! The urn was regained, redemption is complete. Australia have beaten England by five to nothing. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2 with myself, John Norman, and Steve Harmison. Harmy, for many years I've watched England try and ape Australia and uh, and the reverse is true as well. You know, it's uh, whether it was Australia trying to shape Shane Watson to be Freddie Flintoff or um, England trying to uh, make all their wicketkeepers uh, bat like Adam Gilchrist and their openers bat like David Warner. It never works, does it? Um, it's, uh, it, it sh- it's about putting out the team that you've got rather than the team that you want. Yeah, absolutely, and none more so from the the sort of time in the era that I played in. The the, the Australian side that we played against was arguably the greatest of all time, and first class cricket during that time of probably mid to late nineties, all the way through till mid to two thousands, was all about how well how good um, shield cricket was, and about the players who couldn't get into the the Australian side. And we've got to now look at, at, at trying to to change our first class system like that. So it does swings and roundabouts because then after we had beat Australia in 05, all of a sudden do we play with a duke ball in Australia and and all that nonsense? At the end of the day, you've got what you've got. You make the best of best of it. And when you do go toe-to-toe with Australia, whatever situation you're in, whether it's in England or in Australia, you have to adapt quickly to to what's thrown at you. And hopefully, one, you get the rub of the green. Two, um, your key men stay fit and firing and on form because that's what gets you over the line. And England in recent past, their key men, when they went to Australia, was one, two, three, and four, i.e. Strauss, Cook, Trott, Peterson. And that's when the one in in sort of ten eleven. Since then, they haven't really performed with the bat over there to stand any chance of of winning. And same as Australia over in in England. So I think that's the key formula to to um, Ashes cricket. And hopefully, it's going to be interesting from an England point of view when they do get to Brisbane in in what less than eleven months' time. What sort of preparation they've had, who they've picked, and what sort of side they go with. And I think that starts probably on around uh, about June the 1st when India get to England I think England have got f- test matches in, in this country and they've got to be looking to play this team that's going to play against Australia because that is the big one Yeah it's one thing to look at the uh, the bowling lineup of Australia and think well if they bowled India out for 30 uh, 36 um, then we need to to pick a similar looking bowling lineup, but it's also about the batsman, isn't it? You know, do we have the batsman that can, uh, as you mentioned earlier, have the technique to um, to overcome to to score runs? You know, Virat Kohli may mention of the intent 
shown by the Indian batsman or the lack of it. You know, if in a similar situation, what what kind of intent do you see from uh, from from the England batsman? It it really does pose uh, some serious questions. But I think if you're you're Mark Wood sitting on the sidelines, you'd probably look at what happened at the day night test, and that would make you feel more confident that you know you're going to be part and part. You're going to be in in the conversation, uh, if not in the squad. And maybe even the first eleven. Yeah, I think yeah, everybody knows on Talksport what I think of of that situation with Wood and Archer. I think they both have to play as many games as possible in this five man series, and I think Stone comes into that equation as well because I think you need you need pace in the ball, and it's not going horses for courses with Australia toe to toe and say right, we need three fast bowlers because they've got three fast bowlers. This is what you need in pitches with a Kookaburra ball when it doesn't do a great deal. You need somebody to do something out of the ordinary. And that is more likely to happen with somebody bowling in excess of 85 mile an hour than somebody who isn't bowling in excess of 85 mile an hour. You have to be able to get something on these pitches because all of a sudden if you're just continuously waiting on the next new ball then you ain't going to win you ain't going to win the ashes it just it's just not going to happen so when i look at this you know the two sides that are probably matched up you do talk about the batting australia's batting looks okay i would say no there's not something that uh, you take smith and labashane out of that middle order i think there's a there's a middle lower order to be got at there especially if you can get an early wicket and get labashane in at number three early um and you what i would be saying and it's rightly to come you know we've got jack callis coming in as batting coach for sri lanka will he be batting coach for for the ashes who knows but i'd be saying to my batsman look you need clarity of thought first and foremost you need bravery because these guys bowl, you know, they bowl some quick bowls. You, so you have to be brave. You have to have a, cl- a clear plan of how you're going to go forward and how you're going to go back. And then positivity. And when I say positivity, John, that's not being positive, reckless, going out white ball style and crashing the ball to four. One of the most, the, the, one of the most positive batsmen I ever seen best player I ever played against was Ricky Ponton and why he was so good was his positivity when he went forward to defend the ball he was positive his hands were out bang right in front of him middle of the bat he sent a message to the bowler as to say I'm in control when you bowl short bang you know back foot he was clear and thought he was going at the ball for I'm talking about one of the greatest batsmen of all time here but I'm talking about the mindset he had. I always felt as though Ricky was in control of the way he he, he demanded his space. And I think that's what I'd be saying to the England batsman. You have to have a control of that crease around you, whether you're going forward in defence or you're going back in defence or going back in attack, the the, the short pitch ball. And that there is going to be the difference between both batting units winning and losing the Ashes because I think both bowling units have got the ability over five days to take 20 wickets over five test matches to win a series. It's which batting unit can overcome what what the bowlers are going to throw at them. But there's another really interesting point from that, isn't it? Because Ricky Ponting was the captain. You know, he's not just he's not just uh, telling you the bowler or showing you yeah. the bowler his intent. He's showing his team. You know, all the batsmen up in the changing room, uh, the batsmen at the other end. You know, they're watching their captain show them. Is Joe Root uh, capable? Because he has got so much pressure on him. This would be his second overseas tour. He England were beaten soundly the last time. They got away with the draw uh, in 2019. The pressure on Joe Root uh, will be in, immense. 
And I have to say, at times, you know, it has looked like the pressure of the captaincy um, and being a professional cricketer for England has weighed maybe a little too heavy on Joe Root's shoulders. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah, and I, and I agree with that. I think that could be something that this year against India could be the something that Joe might take in, but I'd flip that over if I was in Joe's ear and saying, this is your last time a captain in Australia. I don't think you'll captain again when England go there in, 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 in four years' time. Um, whether he's playing there again in four years' time, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be sort of pumping his tyres up. Joe, this is your moment. This is your Strauss moment. This is your Cook moment. Not only to lead and win an Ashes in Australia, to go and get 600 runs, man. Go and get five, 600 runs. Because if you do that, we win. And that's what I'd be pushing into Joe and really sort of pumping his tyres up and trying to get him to do it. And it's all well and good saying these things. You mentioned there, he has the ability. He has the game. He has the technique. Up there was good as any player in the world cricket on his day. And I think that's the way I'd be looking at it. I'd also be looking at getting my bowling unit right so I potentially could bat Ben Stokes at four. In Australia, against the quick bowlers, I think Ben Stokes has to bowl, has to bat that one place higher because I want to stem the tide. I also want to be to be able to to make sure that two of my best players are in at, at, at that, that one given time when I'm not three down for not very many. If I'm two down, if I'm 30 for two or 40 for two, all of a sudden I've got Root and Stokes that can to, to sort of stem the tide that India couldn't do when they got bowled out for 36. And I think... That only comes if I get my bowling unit right. If Stokes is having to consistently bowl 20 overs and innings on these pitches because there's nothing happening and we need somebody to hit the deck, then all of a sudden Ben Stokes can't bat at number four. He has to bat lower than that because there's too much on his shoulders then. And I think the whole plan, the whole game management of getting the best team out there that can take 20 wickets, but also as a batting unit that can overcome what is a phenomenal bowling unit will be what will win or lose the Ashes for England. So they're the things that I'd be looking to to get in mind, whether they play three opening batsmen in Sibley, Crawley and Burns, or whether they play two opening batsmen in Sibley and Crawley. Say Rook goes up to number three on these good pitches, Stokes in at number four to then release potentially where Bairstow would be more comfortable or a Lawrence at number five with Pope at six and Butler at seven, then I think that would be the the, the, the sort of combination of my batting unit. If Stokes has to bowl a lot, he can't bat at number four. So that would be in the mindset I would have as a, as a selection panel going forward to Australia. But all this has to be ironed out and ready because preparation is huge. And I think that has to be ready for India coming first test match this summer and say, right, these guys are going to solely focus on Test match cricket. They're going to be England. They're going to be India in England, and then they're going to go and play Australia in Australia. And over the course of eleven Test matches, we are going to be by the end of it, Sydney walking off sixth of January, whenever it is. We are the best Test match team in the world because we've just proven we've beaten India and we've beaten Australia, and that's what England's mindset's got to be. Well, let's hope it goes as uh, as smooth as smoothly as that. Maybe if you were doing the coaching, uh, Harmy, <laughs> um, uh, it would. Listen, we've got plenty more to talk about on the show today. We're going to cross to South Africa very shortly. Speak to Neil Manthorpe um, ahead of uh, the Sri Lanka series. There, not so much about that, but you know, the last time we spoke to Manners, 
You know, we're really wondering what now for South Africa cricket. So let's find out how uh, the last week or two have gone. Also, Jack Callis uh, named as batting coach for Sri Lanka. What kind of coach will he be? And Quinton de Kock coming out and saying that uh, he's okay to be test captain, uh, just not for long. Uh, You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. And that will do it. Places that beautifully, a lovely way to bring up the highest score against Australia and your 23rd Test Match 100. What a beauty from Callis! As Hilton House uh, continues, and now Callis brings up the three figures. He's all class, Jack Callis. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport Two with myself, John Norman, and uh, Steve Harmison. Pleased to say we can bring in uh, a very familiar voice, fresh from a run, no doubt. Uh, Neil Manthorpe. Uh, some stories coming out uh, this week from the ECB. Uh, Jack Callis named as England batting consultant for the Sri Lanka Test Tour, a Test Tour that is expected to continue even with uh, London and the South East in lockdown. Hopefully, they weren't planning to take the ferry over to uh, to France before flying to Colombo. I'm sure they won't. Um, but first thing. First, Jack Callis appointed as England's latest batting consultant. Bit of a surprise there, Harmy. The, the, the obvious link from Callis to the England team isn't at first obvious, is it? No, not really. I was trying to wrap my brains and find out how it could. Jack Callis is one of the best cricketers of, of all time. If you go on numbers, he's probably the best cricketer of all time. Bat and bowling and, and field numbers. Um, I don't find it a strange appointment. I think he'd be a very, very good at young kids looking you know, and the England team looking up to him and a mentor and thinking, Wow, I can get you know little bits of Jack. Jack's not the greatest communicator. He's not somebody who is like poor Collingwood who is, you know, life and soul of the party and you know, he, he's he's on the social side of everything. Jack's a little bit more of an introvert. Um but if if he can give any pearls of, of wisdom of the way he's played the game over the course of his twenty year career, I think these England players will have um uh, it'll, it'll do well. The only connection I can think of is the KKR connection with uh, Owen Morgan in the IPL because every, every other coach um, other than play against Jack Callis, I don't think will have come across him too many times in the same same unit environment. Yeah, I mean, Jack Callis was the batting consultant for South Africa when England were in South Africa at the start of the year. Uh, that position's gone to Neil McKenzie, though, the former opener. Um, Manners, what kind of coach are, are we going to see here? And, you know, what kind of effect as well can a, can a guy really do in a two-week period? Yeah, well, not much. Um, you know, do you remember many years ago, England hired Alan Donald as the fast bowling sort of mentor, mm, really? Um, and that. And I... It's. It, I think this is similar. It's more of a mentorship than a, a coaching role as such. And when you said he's not a great communicator, Harmy, um, I, I, he, you're right. Um, but, but I think with Jacques Callis and communication, we're talking quality rather than quantity. You know, yeah. <laughs> he he famously um, was known throughout his 20-year playing career by everybody who played with him. Um, for not saying much in the change room, but when he did open his mouth, everybody was silent and listened. Uh, so I really, I think it's up to the batsmen. I think it's up to the England players as to what they want to get out of it. Um, Callis went straight from playing to coaching. Um, he was, at, he was, you know, in the Kolkata Knight Riders winning t- IPL team, and then Shah Rukh Khan, the owner, 
was suddenly persuaded him to become head coach. Uh, but, you know, it's something that he's, he has always enjoyed. I mean, he's naturally quite shy, but, but he's obviously overcome that. Now he's 45 years old. Um, and he's, uh, I, I think that he, he's going to surprise a few people, you know. And I think that as well, I think of how many England players and, and the coaches, I suppose, and the director of cricket, how long, how many years, hours they spent watching Callis score runs against them. And there's just an aura about him. Um, and that's why I think a short-term position is, 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 is really useful, is exactly the right way to go. Because you just, just being in his presence, just talking about um, some of the great innings that he played, talking about, <laughs> ironically enough, being in a bubble when it used to mean something else because Callis's concentration bubble when he was batting at the crease was, I think, unsurpassed in modern times. Um, but, you know, I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago saying, what, what are you up to? And he said, oh, I could have a surprise for you. Um, but he wouldn't tell me what it was and he could have given me 50 guesses and I wouldn't have come <laughs> yeah. close. Uh, something new, something else that came out uh, from South Africa uh, piqued the interest of Steve Harmison. Quinton de Kock, uh, South Africa test captain, along with the limited over stuff, had this to say. I think Telford Vice, the South African uh, journalist, was asking the question about the longevity uh, that Quinton de Kock sees himself as uh, captain of the test team. Obviously, when they told me the situation that was in, I understood where they were coming from. Obviously, I didn't accept it immediately. You know, I did think about it, but just understand it is only just for now the season. Um, it's not a long-term thing. Uh, I think it's just more for when we get someone who really puts up their hand as a leader of the test team that they will take over. The guys are looking for a long-term leadership role. Um, unfortunately, I won't be doing that. Uh, like I said in the past, I don't see my lot on my plate, but I am happy to do it just for now until certain, until obviously things happen. Well, you mentioned uh, the silence that would descend when Jack Callis would speak in the dressing room. Well, I imagine uh, you can put the word stunned uh, before that if uh, Quinton de Kock ever peeped up uh, in the dressing room. Again, not one of the great orators, uh, but very interesting uh, to hear that he's uh, he basically had to be begged to do it. And he says he doesn't really want to do it for very long. But if not Quentin, uh, then who, Manners? It's a simple equation, really. Um, Dean Elgar is the only captaincy candidate who's a shoe-in at the moment, guaranteed his place. But they don't really see Elgar as the ideal captain um, in, in many ways. And they, they, he doesn't have a great deal, very little captaincy experience. And they'd rather him concentrate on opening the batting. But it basically boils down to uh, a desperate desire for Temba Bavuma to make a place in the middle order his own um, and to improve that batting average of, of 31, to score a couple more hundreds. And if he, if, he, if he can just guarantee himself a place in the starting 11, then he's the man that they would like to be South Africa's next, next captain. And if he doesn't, and he has had a hell of a bite at the cherry already. I mean, he's played almost 40 test matches. Then, uh, then Aidan Markram, who's scored 300s in his last four domestic innings, um, then they see him because he's obviously been a captain all his life. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a simple matter. I think South African cricket needs a black captain, and they desperately want a black captain. Manners, um, I know you're going to, I'll probably know the answer before I ask this question and um, you'll probably jump down a, down a phone at me, but listening to Quentin de Kock there, reading what he said, 
and knowing the history as I do of South African cricket and what comes out of South African cricket, my alarm bells pricked up as thinking, is this Quentin de Kock making an exit strategy out of South African cricket? It's a really good question. Uh, you know, it is. And I've tried to steer myself away from thinking about it <laughs> over the <laughs> last few days. I don't think so, Harmy, but um, I do think that he, he, uh, there's a very strong chance that he won't have the long and, and fulfilled um, international career that, that many hope and that perhaps uh, he deserves. There, there is that chance. I don't think that's the case now. I'm concerned. You know, Graham Smith said to me, look, it's only seven test matches. It's two against Sri Lanka now, two away against Pakistan and three against Australia. Well, you know, I, that was a strange thing to say, I thought, because Graham Smith captained in over 100 test matches. And so he knows that seven test matches, I mean, OK, maybe the two here against Sri Lanka could be thought of as soft, but Sri Lanka are the only Asian team to have won in South Africa. And then two in Pakistan and Australia coming back to South Africa for test cricket for the first time after Sandpapergate. I think there's every chance that Quinton de Kock could be absolutely frazzled halfway through those seven test matches. Only seven? Oh, gee. You know, and we've seen... We saw against England, de Kock looking slightly lost and, and bewildered um, at, with bowlers being carved all over the place in T20 cricket. It's so hard for a keeper to, to, to do the job um, at international level in any format. But, you know, you, you're isolated. As soon as the opposition are 200 for two, you've only got maybe one slip standing next to you. You're all alone. You're man alone. You, you're not next to your bowler at mid-off. Um, so I, I think it's... I think it's a it's a huge risk. I, I really do. But Manners, surely Graham Smith is is the, the the ideal man to have in a position. Bear in mind, I've played in Graham Smith's first ever Test match uh, as captain. He was a no. We Nasser Hussain didn't even know his name. Do you know what I mean? And now that's tongue in cheek, but surely at this point, if he's saying seven, it's just seven Test matches. Then surely it is. Uh, Graham Smith can pluck somebody out of the air and go. Do you know what? I'm going to take a punt, like South Africa did with Graham Smith, on an Aidan Markham and say, right, it's your team. It's your goal. Because rumour has it, and you know better than me, Manners, that two of my greatest friends from South Africa that I played with, Neil McKenzie and Dale Benkenstein, during that time, it was going to be one of them who was going to be captain rather than a 22-year-old novice in Graham Smith. And they basically got banished from the side. They, Graham Smith didn't want them in the team. It was Graham Smith's team. He was going to take it forward. And the rest is history, shall we say. Surely he's in the prime position to say, Do you know what? Quinton de Kock doesn't need the captaincy. I'm going to keep him happy by just catching the ball and hitting the ball. I'm going to get somebody out like a Markham who's captained all his life, like you say, and give him the job. Yeah, you're right. And it, it's yes and no. I mean, Smith is... I think a victim of his own success because he he became South Africa's youngest ever captain at 22. He's captain South Africa. He's in more Test matches than anybody else ever. So he's done it, and so part of him at least must be thinking, well, you know, how how hard can it be for Quinny? I mean, you know, he's talented and and uh, he's he's our best player. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, because captaincy just came so naturally to Graham Smith who'd captained every team he played in from, you know, under nines. So uh, the, the point about Aidan Markram is that, he, you know, he again, he has to re-establish himself in the team. He, he was the captain-elect two or three years ago, but then 
was injured and, and lost his temper and punched a, a, a locker door in India and broke his hand. And so there were questions of his temperament. But it, it really is just a question of who establishes, establishes themselves in the team, Bavuma or Markram, um, and then it's, you know, th then handed over. It, he just feels that it's not the right time now. But I, I think that um, if South Africa keep losing, and you know, they've lost six of the last seven test matches, then uh, de Kock is going to be more and more isolated. And he's the kind of sort of genius that you don't want falling out of love with the game. It happened to him once before. He almost walked away from cricket four and a half years ago uh, when he was overworked and he really did fall out of the love out of love with the game he um he almost did some crazy things he did he walked away for a month and went fishing um you know in flagrant breach of his contract so you just don't want to risk that with him and i i think and he knows that he's best not suited to captaincy of the test team uh, Manners, uh, we've uh, sadly run out of time. I wanted to ask you about uh, the upcoming uh, series against uh, Sri Lanka. Also, South Africa returning to Pakistan. Were you there the last time they went to Pakistan? About 14 years I was, years yes, 2008. Oh, 12 years ago, nearly. Oh, well, look, I'll have to wait, I'm afraid. Uh, but look, have a great Christmas. Thanks for all that you've done for us here on TalkSport 2 and the Cricket Collective and as part of our cricket uh, coverage in 2020. Roll on 2021, eh? <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely absolutely uh, Manners thank you Harmy as well have a brilliant Christmas mate. and you John uh, and all to, uh, also to all of our listeners on TalkSport 2 and those that subscribe and download to the following on podcast uh, have a great Christmas we'll be back between Christmas and New Year uh, but for now thanks for listening to the Cricket Collective the following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.